This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. Support this podcast by joining the independent progressive media revolution today at humanistreport.com. Welcome to the Humanist Report podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 87th episode of the program. Today is March 24th of 2017, and before we get started, I want to thank these people for joining the independent progressive media revolution. So today we have Andrew Moore, Madeline Comer, Emilia Rainwalker, Natasha Irani, Daniel Martinez Tahita, Ivan Kosyakov, and Perry Ramstead. So all of these individuals decided to support the program either by becoming Patreon patrons, becoming members on humanistreport.com, or donating to us via PayPal. If you'd also like to support the show, you could visit the links down below. However, you can also support the show for free by liking our videos, by sharing our videos, and just by spreading the word through uh, through social media. So if you could do that, you will help us out tremendously free of charge. So on today's episode, we will revisit the dreadful 2016 election as Donna Brazil attempts to rebound and repair her image. I'll also discuss how Rachel Maddow is trying to convince Bernie supporters that their dislike for Clinton is actually due to them succumbing to Russian propaganda. Not kidding. I'll also talk about Nancy Pelosi, Hillary Clinton's ongoing presence in the party, Sarah Palin's hypocrisy, Flint, Michigan's water crisis, Bill Maher, and the confirmation hearings of Supreme Court nominee Neil Gorsuch. Additionally, I'll talk about how the Democratic Party establishment is now whining about progressive purity tests while getting even more cozy with billionaire donors. We'll also get to Bernie Sanders and why he's loved by everyone but the Democratic Party establishment, and I'll talk about what he has to say about Donald Trump's new health care bill. So all of these topics will be discussed in today's episode. Let's go ahead and jump right in. Hopefully you guys enjoy the show. When WikiLeaks released John Podesta's emails to the public, Donna Brazil was one of many media operatives that was revealed to have been giving Hillary Clinton an unfair advantage over Bernie Sanders by colluding with her and trying to help her. Specifically, she gave Hillary Clinton a question in advance of a town hall on CNN, uh, and she didn't give a question to Bernie Sanders. Now, the person who broke this story is Jordan Sheridan. Now, he actually confronted her about this, and this was what she had to say. I have never been privileged, as long as I've been uh, not just a part of CNN, which, let me just say, of how proud I am to have been um, a contributor for CNN and other news outlets. And no one has ever, ever shared questions with any of us. So she's contending here that it would have been impossible for her to leak a question to Hillary Clinton in advance because CNN, quote, has never, ever shared questions with any of us. But we now know that that was a lie, and we even knew back then that this was a lie. And when Jordan tried to press her on this issue, she even accused him of being sexist. What about you passing a question to Hillary Clinton's campaign, the town hall before? Yes, a journalist asking a question is badgering you. That's what happens when you're caught in a lie and you're backed into a corner because you then try to attack the character of the person accusing you of said lie. But nobody was buying it, and Jordan wasn't the only journalist who Donna Brazil was lying to. She insisted to me that she she hadn't leaked the questions. In other words, she lied to me. She lied to me. We all know that she was lying. That's no secret. But after months of trying to perpetuate this lie, she finally is coming forward and 
kind of telling the truth. So in an article for Time titled Russian DNC narrative played out exactly as they hoped, ultimately she paints herself as well as the DNC as the victims. So she confesses that she did in fact give Hillary Clinton a town hall question in advance but, I mean, again, it's her that's the victim. It's not the Bernie Sanders supporters that she screwed over. So she states, When I was asked last July to step in temporarily as DNC chair, I knew things were amiss. The DNC had been hacked and thousands of staff emails and documents were plastered on various websites. Staff were harassed, morale suffered, and we lost weeks of planning. Donors were harassed and fundraising fell off. Then in October, a subsequent release of emails revealed that among the many things I did in my role as a Democratic operative and DNC vice chair prior to assuming the interim DNC chair position was to share potential town hall topics with the Clinton campaign. I had been working behind the scenes to add more town hall events and debates to the primary calendar. And I helped ensure those events included diverse moderators and address topics vital to minority communities. My job was to make all our Democratic candidates look good, and I worked closely with both campaigns to make that happen. But sending those emails was a mistake I will forever regret. By stealing all of the DNC's emails and then selectively releasing those few, the Russians made it look like I was in the tank for Secretary Clinton. Despite the strong public support I received from top Sanders campaign aides in the wake of those leaks, the media narrative played out just as the Russians had hoped, leaving Sanders supporters understandably angry and sowing division in our ranks. In reality, not only was I not playing favorites, the more competitive and heated the primary got, the harder DNC staff worked to be scrupulously fair and beyond reproach. In all the months the Russians monitored the DNC's email, they found just a handful of inappropriate emails with no sign of anyone taking action to disadvantage the Sanders campaign. But the damage was done. Politics has never been considered a clean sport, but 2016 marked a new low. The DNC, a political party committee dedicated in part to defending free and fair elections, was attacked by the Russians while the Republican nominee for president openly encouraged it. This was not a Hollywood movie about rogue spies and super agents. This was real life. So with this confession here, she took one step forward and two steps back. And some of what she said is really aggravating. So, so she states here, The Russians made it look like I was in the tank for Secretary Clinton. Donna, the Russians didn't make it look like you were in the tank for Hillary Clinton. The reason why it appeared as though you were in the tank for Hillary Clinton was because you were, in fact, in the tank for Hillary Clinton. And these emails didn't reveal anything new to progressives. We already knew that the DNC and the so-called neutral political pundits were trying to sabotage Bernie Sanders' campaign, but the emails just showed us the extent to which this was occurring and just validated progressives who many were painting as conspiratorial because we dared to suggest that the primaries were rigged. And now, lo and behold, looks like it actually was rigged and we have evidence to back it up. And there were other emails that showed that you actually had contempt for Bernie Sanders. I mean, there was one email where you said you couldn't talk to Bernie Sanders because you were afraid that you wouldn't be able to hold yourself back from cussing the Sanders people out. So don't give us this bullshit. You're still lying here and you need to tell the truth. I mean, if you're going to tell us the truth, don't just tell us the half truth. Actually be 100% honest with us because we know you're lying you're a horrible liar we see right through your bullshit she also said that the media narrative played out just as the russians had hoped and they successfully 
sewed division within our ranks. Not at all. That division was already there because of what the DNC and Hillary Clinton did. I mean, Hillary Clinton became very divisive when she decided to go negative. She attacked Bernie Sanders as a sexist, as a racist, and then she coordinated with the media to plant narratives about Bernie Sanders supporters being sexist Bernie bros. Had they not done that, had the DNC not just been brazenly in the tank for Hillary Clinton, had the media not been doing propaganda for Hillary Clinton, which was obvious to us, then the Russians couldn't do anything to piss us off. But we were already pissed off, and we just had evidence because of the WikiLeaks emails, which, by the way, we still don't know that the Russians actually released. And Julian Assange of WikiLeaks maintains that it wasn't the Russians, it was a DNC insider, which makes sense. So, we're not buying this bullshit, and the Russians... Even if it was the Russians that released these emails, you're just angry because you got caught. The DNC's guilty. You're guilty, Donna Brazil. Debbie Wasserman Schultz is guilty. And had you not been doing these corrupt, horrible things to benefit Hillary Clinton over Bernie Sanders, then there would be nothing to piss us off to begin with. They couldn't have released anything on you that would have sowed division within our ranks. But because you guys decided to be corrupt and collude with Hillary Clinton to make the Democratic primaries unfair... That's why we were pissed off. And she also said here for her last lie, she states, They found just a handful of inappropriate emails with no sign of anyone taking action to disadvantage the Sanders campaign. Again, this is another lie that's easily disproven. So people within the DNC were caught creating narratives to give people in the media, such as yourself, about how they wanted to use Bernie Sanders' presumed atheism against him. And when people began to suspect that the DNC was actively trying to sabotage Bernie's campaign... Well, then they began to create Bernie narratives to sell to the media. One email reads, wondering if there's a good narrative for a story, which is that Bernie never ever had his act together, that his campaign was a mess. That way, they could play off the rigging of the primaries, saying, it's not a DNC conspiracy, it's because they never had their act together. So, I mean, you really have nerve to say that nobody uh, was taking action to disadvantage Bernie Sanders. It's a complete lie, and we don't believe you, so it makes no sense to me why you would admit to one truth when you are still lying about other things. So, I mean, you are responding to a lie. You're asking for forgiveness. You're saying you regret this lie with more lies. So what's it going to be? Are you going to be truthful, Donna, or are you going to continue to lie to the American people? It makes no sense to me because I think in releasing this statement, she did more harm for her public image that she's currently trying to repair than good. So, I mean, Donna Brazil, as someone who was a contributor to CNN, as someone who was the interim DNC chair, she represents everything wrong with the media and with the DNC. You are a corrupt politician and you just carry water for the powerful. That's not unfair just to Bernie Sanders. That's unfair to the people who supported Bernie Sanders, who donated to Bernie Sanders, who phone banked for Bernie Sanders, who actually canvassed for Bernie Sanders while you sat on your ass in a cozy CNN studio and did propaganda for Hillary Clinton. So please, spare me the bullshit. Spare me this victim card that you're trying to play. Nobody believes that you're the victim. The victims are the people who you betrayed by giving Hillary Clinton an unfair advantage over Bernie Sanders. And you should be ashamed of yourself for even doing that. The Democratic Party establishment has made it pretty clear that they're not too keen on the idea of progressive Berniecrats challenging incumbent Democrats in 2018. Now, to kind of give you an example of this, Claire McCaskill recently discussed how she was worried about facing a primary challenge from the left. And then Real Clear Politics alleges that the left should just leave Joe Manchin alone. 
Now, additionally, we're learning that Senator Dianne Feinstein is losing support among her constituents, which is actually surprising to me that this didn't happen even sooner, considering the way that she defended how the NSA violates the Fourth Amendment by spying on citizens, yet she condemned the CIA when she found out that the CIA was spying on senators. But, I mean, putting that aside, even governors are expressing fears about progressives applying ideological purity tests in the South in 2018. And they contend that the rise of progressives is generating fear and nervousness in the South in places like Georgia, South Carolina, and Tennessee, where some promising Democratic candidates who are looking at running statewide in 2018 could face resistance from the left. Now, they claim that this is nonsensical because Democrats have to be conservative in the South, but I mean, they fail to acknowledge polling that finds that certain policies like raising the minimum wage, expanding Social Security, I mean, these policies play well everywhere. Since states in the South are traditionally more conservative, Democrats think that they should be given a free pass to be as corporatist and conservative as they want. Unacceptable. Now, to be fair to them, the fears of these corporate stooges aren't unfounded because progressives will be posing challenges to corporatist establishment Democrats from the left because we've recently seen the explosion of groups like Justice Democrats, Brand New Congress, We Will Replace You, Draft Bernie, and Our Revolution, just to name a few. And these groups are essential because the DNC won't embrace progressives. And the new DNC transition team was stacked with Hillary Clinton surrogates and staffers and just one Bernie grad. And it wasn't until they received criticism that they decided to add a couple of more progressives to their transition team. So, I mean, the overall point is that we're done waiting for the Democratic Party to change. We're now taking over the party. We are taking action. We're taking matters into our own hands. Uh, and we will be here to challenge them from the left because that's what you do if you champion left-wing policies that are populist, you will win in red states and blue states. It doesn't matter. You will win because these are ideas that are popular, that resonate. Now, after these centrist corporatist Democrats saw the rise of multiple progressive groups that are planning to challenge them in 2018, well, they sent out a distress signal to corporate media saying, hey, you've got to help us. you got to do some propaganda. And of course, like the corporate media always does, it responded and came to their defense. So recently, NBC published an article where they tried to paint progressives as radicals, saying that the more radical strain of Bernie Sanders' movement still believes that he would have won, as if that's so unreasonable or has been disproven. But, I mean, when you actually dive into this article, it gets worse than that. So journalist Alex Seitzwald alleges that the disaffected left is as or more interested in remaking the Democratic Party as it is in fighting Trump, as if we're incapable of focusing on two goals at once. And let me just say this, the implication here is that, well, you know, these progressives, they claim to be liberal, but they attack Democrats more than they attack Republicans. But what you fail to realize is that if Democrats had their act together, Republicans would not be in power. We would not have a President Donald Trump right now. So, yeah, I think that Democrats deserve to be criticized and ostracized nonstop until they get their act together or until we take over the party. So, please, I, I mean, nobody's going to shed a tear for Democrats. They did this to themselves. And now it's time that, you know, after focusing so much on Republicans as they moved further and further to the right and became more crazy, we didn't realize just how out of touch the Democratic Party was, too. So, I'm sorry, but... Nobody's buying your bullshit. We have to criticize Democrats, and we also have to hold Donald Trump accountable. But what he then tried to do was 
do a character assassination of one of the founders of Justice Democrats. He states, For Justice Democrats' founder, liberal media personality Jenk Uger, what seems to matter the most is inflicting damage on the Democratic Party. The group's website features an image of a sledgehammer smashing the D logo of the Democratic National Committee and declares it's time to rebuild the Democratic Party from scratch. It appears as though the sledgehammer smashing the D triggered him. Not mentioned hardly anywhere on the site is Trump. Critics say Uger's slash-and-burn approach to the Democratic Party is little more than an opportunist attempt to corner the media market for disaffected liberals and that now he and his ilk are trying to do the same for politics. So he is assassinating Jenk's character and he's very deliberately implying that he's an opportunist. I mean, he, he, he didn't imply it. He explicitly stated he's an opportunist. He thinks that the Justice Democrats is an opportunistic movement. Never mind the fact that you don't see Jenk's face anywhere on the Justice Democrat website and it's just all policy substance. Never mind that fact. But, you know, because he disagrees with Justice Democrats, he's trying to slander Jenk because you can't really argue with them based on the substance. They have a point. If the Democratic Party is not going to change, then you have to take them over. So he criticizes the Justice Democrats and these organizations because they threaten the status quo. And Alex Seitz Wall likes the status quo because they give him access. And it's unacceptable. And this is a point, though, that Jenk made in his response to Alex. But I mean... This is just absolutely ridiculous to me because he states again, you know, not mentioned hardly anywhere on the site is Trump. Again, we can have two goals. We can criticize the Democratic Party and also hold Donald Trump accountable. You know, we, we're capable of multitasking. It's a thing. You know that, right, Alex? But, you know, he thinks that you should focus all of your energy on Donald Trump. And so long as the Democratic Party, they remain just marginally less shitty than Republicans. Well, then there's nothing to worry about with Democrats. Again, if Democrats hadn't betrayed the public and become corp and became corporatists in the first place, the Republicans wouldn't have won the White House and Congress and state legislators and a majority of governorships across the country. So if you are honestly telling me that we shouldn't criticize Democrats, then uh, good luck having Republicans in office for a lot longer because they're never going to know what's wrong if you don't criticize them. Now, I want to get back to this idea that we are subjecting corporate Democrats to an ideological purity test because... This ideological purity test, I mean, this theoretical purity test is pretty easy to pass, if you ask me, because what we're asking really is for you to get on the side of policy issues that the American people agree with, like getting money out of politics, supporting a single-payer healthcare system, ending unnecessary wars, breaking up the big banks. We want you to represent us and not the billionaires and not the multinational corporations, but I mean, to support these ideas... You have to stop being corporate stooges because so long as you take corporate money, your donors won't allow you to represent us. So, I mean, the ideological purity test is that you represent us. That's what democracy is about. So I wouldn't even call it an ideological purity test. I would call it just a test of whether or not you're reasonable or not. Do you take money from billionaires and expect people who you will not represent to support you? Then you're not reasonable. You don't pass our test. So spare me on this ideological purity test nonsense. Now... As he is complaining about this, as the Democratic Party establishment is bemoaning progressive challenges to the left, this story just broke in the Daily Beast. The Democratic Party's top officials will meet with some of their wealthiest donors in Washington, D.C. this week to plot the Trump resistance, according to documents obtained by the Daily Beast. The chairs of the Democratic National Committee and the party's House and Senate campaign arms will huddle with activists, operatives, and deep-pocketed Democratic financers at a biannual conference hosted by the Democracy Alliance, a leading left-wing donor collaborative at Washington's ritzy Mandarin Oriental Hotel. 
the alliance brings together high-dollar liberal donors, individuals, labor unions, and charitable foundations that pledge to give at least $200,000 annually to left-wing organizations. Through its partners, as the donors are known internally, the alliance in 2015 raised $75 million for its supported organizations, an annual record for the group. Those include the Center for American Progress, a liberal policy shop that has turned its 501c4 arm into an anti-Trump war room and Media Matters for America, a media-focused rapid response group that has recently retooled its efforts toward fake news and pro-Trump disinformation. Donors in attendance will include Michael Vichone, a top aide to billionaire hedge fund manager George Soros, healthcare technology mogul Paul Eagerman, Dallas philanthropist Naomi Aberly, Susan Sandler, the daughter of subprime mortgage pioneer Herb Sandler, and Ian Simmons, the husband of Hyatt Hotel Fortune heiress Lizel Pritzker Simmons. So, as progressives, as citizens, as longtime Democratic Party loyalists, cry out to the party and beg them to represent their interests and not the interests of their donors. They have the nerve to bemoan these ideological purity tests and say, you know, you shouldn't try to push us further to the left. All that we are asking is for you to represent voters and not donors. It's, it's extremely simple. To call it an ideological purity test is unreasonable, I think. It's just a test of whether or not you're actually going to do what you are elected to do. Represent your constituents not your donors. And Tom Perez, he's actually going to be speaking at this event, and he's doing exactly what he was elected to do. Keep the money train rolling in. So he's going to be taking questions from billionaire donors and these super PACs. Not joking. Someone who is the head of the resistance for Donald Trump, Tom Perez, he is further making the Democratic Party entrenched in billionaire money and super PAC money and dark money. Now, another aspect of the story is that the people involved with the anti-Trump war room and uh, Media Matters, David Brock and whatnot, these are all the people who were surrogates for Hillary Clinton that lost. They've shown that they are not capable of winning against Donald Trump, and they are in charge of challenging Donald Trump now. They're doubling down on a losing strategy. And furthermore, Hillary Clinton outraised Donald Trump by a two-to-one margin, and he still defeated her. Money isn't everything. You actually have to win over voters because money does not translate directly into votes. It goes only so far, but if you don't have the grassroots momentum behind you, you cannot win elections, Democrats. It's very clear. And to state that doesn't mean I'm subjecting you to an ideological purity test. I'm telling you that if you want to be electorally viable, you must represent the voters and not the donors. Look, I don't want to hear about these ideological purity tests, and I have absolutely no remorse for these corporate Democrats who are afraid that they will face challengers in 2018 from the left, because it's not unreasonable to expect your base to still support you if you continue to snub them and continue to sip on champagne and get cozy with liberal elites. That's not a purity test. That's called you being a bad politician and doing exactly what facilitated your losing streak in the first place. So spare me the outrage. Nobody's shedding a single tear for Democrats, okay? They did this to themselves, and we live in a democracy. So if we want to challenge these corporate Democrats with a progressive, we're entitled to do that because if we are not being adequately represented, then we are, like, we're quite literally entitled. It's in the Constitution. We can challenge them. That's why we hold elections, because we want people to represent us 
as well as they possibly can. And since corporate Democrats don't want to represent us, they have no interest in representing anyone but the donors, anyone but the multinational corporations. It's our right to challenge them. So don't cry about it. If you actually don't want to be challenged, then represent us. It's very simple. Rachel Maddow is one of the many mainstream media pundits that has capitalized on the renewal of McCarthyism in the United States by literally equating any and everything that Donald Trump does to a Kremlin conspiracy. So if Donald Trump tries to de-escalate tensions between the United States and Russia and withdraw troops from Russia's border, well, then he must be doing it at the behest of Vladimir Putin because he's a shill. If Donald Trump doesn't want to arm Ukrainian rebels because he doesn't want to create a proxy war between the United States and Russia, which is the policy that President Obama maintained, well, then he must be doing this because he's trying to appease Putin. So everything that Donald Trump does is because of the Russians, and now she's taking this to a new level. She's not so subtly suggesting that if you're a Bernie Sanders supporter who dislikes Hillary Clinton, well, you don't dislike Hillary Clinton because you're a rational human being that came to that conclusion on your own. Well, it's because you were duped by the Russians. Now, how is she making this point exactly? Because I think it's going to be pretty difficult to convince people that they were gullible and they don't like someone because of Russian propaganda, but she first makes the point about Twitter bots and how this came into play. Any Twitter conversation that mentioned Hillary Clinton. Rec recognize a pro-Hillary Clinton message or a pro-Hillary Clinton hashtag or even just the name Hillary or the name Clinton and then deluge that mention with fake news stories, with crude remarks, with porn with lots and lots of pro-Donald Trump commentary. Just flood the zone with enough of that stuff, and pretty soon, nobody can really have a conversation online about Hillary Clinton at all. If you do that enough, if you get enough bots working that beat, you end up drowning out what would otherwise be normal communication, normal commentary, normal discussion, or even normal political organizing. You end up drowning it out in misinformation and noise and insults and just the sheer amount of traffic. So now the question is, why is she talking about Twitter bots and what does this have to do with Russia? Well, she goes on. We are starting to be able to put it together in terms of how Russia used that particular weapon to basically eat American political discourse during our election, or at least eat or, 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 or render useless a big portion of it. Now, let me just say that the use of bots on the internet is nothing new, and people like to pretend that fake news is a new phenomenon that only uh, manifested during this recent election, but that's not the case. Fake news has and always will be around, because so long as there's just a few gullible people that will be buying penis enlargement pills or giving a Nigerian prince money, there will always be ploys to dupe people over. And news is no different with respect to bullshit, and fake news has been a problem even before the internet became more prevalent. It's called tabloids, National Enquirer, and the people that believe this bullshit or this bullshit probably aren't the most politically astute people in the first place. But I mean, her overall contention is that Hillary Clinton was unfairly disadvantaged because the Russians tried to, quote, eat American political discourse because anytime you talk about Hillary Clinton, you just couldn't have a reasonable discussion because these bots or and trolling bots would uh, come up and talk badly about Hillary Clinton. Now, if this strategy sounds familiar to you, well, you're not alone. This is the exact strategy employed by Hillary Clinton's super PAC. 
which she coordinated with, correct the record. So they spent $1 million combating online trolling with more trolling. So what correct the record did was they pushed back against Bernie Bros. This is literally their own words. They called us Bernie Bros. To counter anyone that supported Bernie Sanders on Twitter, on Facebook, Reddit, and Instagram. And while we're on the topic of Twitter bots, Hillary Clinton has millions of fake Twitter followers, according to Twitter Audit. Now, because of this, there was speculation at the beginning of her campaign that she was actually buying followers because of her unpopularity, but we can't necessarily confirm this. However, the same was suspected about Donald Trump, who also has a huge percentage of fake Twitter followers. Now, as you get bigger, the number of fake Twitter followers you have will increase. So, I mean, for example, 10% of Bernie Sanders' followers are fake, and 2% of the Humanist Report's followers are fake. But, I mean, when nearly 25% of your followers are fake, it's not unreasonable to assume that you're buying followers. And when I say buying followers, I mean using bots to inflate your numbers on Twitter. But I mean, when it comes to whether or not Hillary Clinton used bots to inflate Twitter followers, that's more speculative. But we do know that what she's complaining about that disadvantaged Hillary Clinton is a strategy that Hillary Clinton did to disadvantage Bernie Sanders with her super back. So what she's alleging here is that these bots that targeted Hillary Clinton supporters online, they actually also targeted pro-Bernie Sanders groups to plan anti-Hillary Clinton propaganda. Now, in this next segment, let's see if you can actually pick up the underlying implication, because I don't think it's very subtle. They used automated social media bots and what appeared to be paid operatives in Russia and other countries specifically to target Bernie supporters. They took the real split in the Democratic Party between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders and they blew it up into what they hoped would be an unbreachable chasm. One of the administrators at a Bernie Sanders Facebook page in San Diego uh, described it like this to Graham and Cherkis at the Huffington Post, quote, people with no apparent ties to California were friending his San Diego Facebook page and sharing links from unfamiliar sites full of anti-Hillary Clinton propaganda. The stories they posted were not the normal complaints. These stories alleged that Hillary Clinton had murdered her political opponents and used body doubles. Uh, when John Mattis, the administrator on that Bernie site in San Diego, uh, when John Mattis started tracking down the site's domain registrations, the trail led to places like Macedonia and Albania. And it wasn't just San Diego. By mid-May, an administrator of a Facebook site for Bernie Sanders supporters uh, in California, Bay Area for Bernie, uh, was setting off her own alert about many, if not all, of the Bernie groups being inundated, quote, with bogus users. At Sane Progressive, they were posting the same warning. Now, this has been previously reported, previously discussed around the campaign, as if that foreign influx of sort of noise and vitriol was all commercial traffic. People in foreign countries who didn't really care about the US election, but they were writing all these fake news stories basically to, to troll for clicks, to get gullible US politics junkies to click on those stories just because they wanted the ad revenue they could get from people clicking on their stories. The ad revenue they could get from traffic they could drive to their site no matter what nonsense thing they posted. Yep. And certainly there's a commercial element to it. That is definitely some of it. But we now understand much more about how Russian intelligence piggybacks on commercial hacking and commercial trolling efforts. It's part of their MO. It's what Russian intelligence does, particularly Russian military intelligence. We also know that the Bernie administrators who went through this in real time, at least some of them 
don't believe that what they were going through, that what was washing over their Bernie supporter sites, they don't necessarily all believe that it was just people trying to make money off Bernie supporters. So do you see what she's trying to suggest here? In other words, if you disliked Hillary Clinton, well, congratulations, you're a dumbass. You were duped over by anti-Hillary propaganda by the Russians that was created in Albania and Macedonia. It's not because of the policy substance or lack thereof. It's because you were duped over by the Russians. So I find this incredibly condescending because we have an elite here who's talking down to the peasants and not so subtly suggesting that you're just not smart enough to dislike a politician on your own accord. It's because you were duped over. It's because you're gullible. And I take issue with that. Now, what she overlooks is the fact that even though the people within these groups trace these pro-Bernie Sanders groups back to Macedonia and Albania, well, that doesn't really mean much in a day and age where VPNs are widely available. So if you're going to troll, obviously you're going to use a VPN to block your IP address, even if you are in the United States. So the fact that these were traced back to Macedonia and Albania means nothing. They could be within the United States just using a VPN to block their IP address. But she didn't think about that. And I find that really interesting. Interesting, and this is the point made by Debbie, the same progressive. Shout out to her. Uh, and furthermore, it, to mention Debbie, she brought up Debbie's group, the same progressive group, because she also warned about this influx of fake news that her uh, Facebook page was being bombarded with. But what's interesting here is that you know, if you know Debbie like I do, if you actually talk to Debbie. Uh, and you get the context as to what happened, what Debbie says happened is a lot different than what Rachel Maddow is insinuating here. Our social media groups were hit and taken down on uh, Facebook. Bernie Sanders uh, for president, I'm an administrator of, one of the largest social media uh, groups on Facebook. Uh, they infiltrated our group. They posted pornography in the group. Uh, people's computers, uh, administrator computers were attacked. My computer was attacked. And Russia didn't attack me, Rachel. Hillary Clinton's smear campaign attacked me. And um, no one, no one at the time, uh, uh, Sanders didn't respond, the media didn't respond, um, people's computers were infected. Um, very, very disturbing because the involvement of pornography, some of it, uh, I, I can give you the video that I did um, if you, you are if you're curious to, to learn more about those attacks. There was actually child porn being um, uploaded onto our groups, and I was really concerned as an administrator. I was trying to warn everyone: don't click on those links. Contact Facebook. If you click on a child porn link, they, that may somehow infect your computer. You may have child pornography put on your computer. And God knows what these psychopaths may try to do to frame you as being some kind of um, pedophile. I mean, this is the kind of thing that we were worried about happening. Child pornography was being planted into our, our um, Facebook groups at the exact same time. I think... I think I think the attack came out two days or a week later this, after David Brock announced that they were going to be going online to hit social media groups. So Debbie's group was one of many that was inundated with pornography because if you post pornography on Facebook, then that violates their terms of use. So the goal of doing this was to get those pro-Bernie groups shut down. And this was being done by Hillary Clinton supporters, presumably correct the record. But we know that this was a coordinated effort by either a pro-Hillary Clinton Facebook group or some forum online of pro-Hillary 
Hillary Clinton supporters where they posted porn and including child porn in some cases on pro Bernie Sanders Facebook pages because they wanted to get those groups shut down or silenced or suspended. But yet, Rachel Maddow proceeds to blame Russia for this. Now, the question overall is why is this important? Well, there's two reasons. First of all, I find it incredibly degrading that she believes that just everyday Americans aren't smart enough to come to their own decision about Hillary Clinton. Now, second of all, Rachel doesn't want you to think that Hillary Clinton lost because she was a flawed candidate. I mean, she wants you to attribute no blame to Hillary Clinton whatsoever, so that way when Hillary Clinton runs again in 2020, well, this time, she might actually win. Rachel Maddow tried to blame third-party voters for Hillary Clinton's loss before she jumped on the Russian bandwagon, and then she called out Jill Stein and is now implying that Jill Stein is also to blame for Hillary Clinton's loss, even though Jill Stein took less votes away from Hillary Clinton than Gary Johnson took from Donald Trump. But I mean, the bottom line is that she's like everyone else in the corporate media that blames Russia or Comey or millennials for their candidate's failure. But now she's blaming Russia and is contending that they were able to manipulate Bernie Sanders supporters. It couldn't possibly be because of the policies that she had, right? It couldn't possibly be that we disliked Hillary Clinton because she supported a Syrian no-fly zone, or that she wanted to respond to cyber attacks militarily, or that she wasn't in favor of a single-payer healthcare system, or supported the TPP, or voted for the Iraq War, and was against marijuana legalization. It's because the Russians got into our heads. Unbelievable. So... I found this incredibly insulting because the reason why I dislike Hillary Clinton is because of Hillary Clinton's policies. It's because I disagree with her and I don't like the way uh, that she rigged the election against Bernie Sanders and his supporters. She made it seem as though she was inevitable and entitled to the role of president. When that's not the case, we don't live in an oligarchy. We don't live in a country where you are just anointed the role of president. That's what happens in authoritarian regimes, but Hillary Clinton was so entitled, she thought that it, this was her job, and anyone who got in her way, well, they were to blame, and that's something that is unacceptable. Now, what I want to leave you with is a closing line from Newslog's Caitlin Johnstone, who said this, Sanders appealed because he spoke from his gut like a real human about real things that real people wanted. Hillary's undoing was her sheer lack of policy, personality, integrity, and humanity. And none of that had anything to do with Macedonian clickbait. We hated Hillary because she fucking sucked. And really, it's that simple. If you listen to Bernie Sanders supporters like myself, we weren't talking about conspiracies as to how Hillary Clinton murdered her staff members. We were talking about the policy positions that she had that we disagreed with that hurt the middle class, that facilitated more wars in the Middle East and North Africa. That's what we were talking about. We weren't talking about Macedonian clickbait. So I find this incredibly insulting to Rachel Maddow and I thought that, you know, as someone who was formerly progressive before she uh, became a partisan hack, that she would have been objective enough to know that Hillary Clinton was already a flawed candidate before she entered the race. But instead, she just thinks so lowly of us peasants that we couldn't possibly dislike Hillary Clinton because we're smart enough to come to that rational conclusion on ourselves and we don't want to vote against our own interests. We dislike Hillary Clinton because of Russian propaganda. No, Rachel, that's not it. Former DNC interim chair Donna Brazil was on The Daily Show with Trevor Noah and the entire segment was completely insufferable. It came off as a very obvious attempt to repair her broken public image and the entire piece just really felt like a fluff piece. Now I'll explain to you why I think that's the case but overall just generally speaking she was trying 
overly hard to be personable and she randomly brought up sports for example and she kept flirting with trevor noah and it just seemed so disingenuous and contrived and even cringeworthy at certain points but there were a couple of parts in there that i thought were important that really stood out to me now unfortunately i am not allowed to show you the clip because according to viacom who's the owner of comedy central they believe that trevor noah's face is so sacred that if i even show a picture of him they will give me a copyright strike on my YouTube account and threaten to basically kill off my channel. So because of this, I'm not allowed to show you the clips. So what I did, because I love you guys and I want to talk about this segment, is I took a lot of time transcribing everything what was said in this interview. And I didn't even use most of what I transcribed. So basically, I have heard more from Donna Brazil than I ever want or needed to, yet some of what she said still makes no sense to me. So to kind of give you some of the first things that she said that really either perplexed me or rubbed me the wrong way, she said that the position of DNC chair is a thankless job. Nobody's going to thank you, Donna. Nobody feels bad for you. She also stated that she temporarily served as DNC chair before but this time when she served, it was hell because, quote, the Russians invaded us. Now, knowing that that was an outright fabrication, Noah actually clarified and said, no, they, they hacked your emails. Now, much like other people within the Democratic Party establishment, when she was asked the question that most media pundits are asking people from the Democratic Party what the party stands for, like everyone else, she had no answer. So she states, first of all, we had an election for new offices. Tom Perez is the chair of the party. Keith Ellison was named the deputy chair. We have some great people. Karen Carter, Jason Ray, Michael Blake. We have some new energy, new vision in the party. The party needs that. Look, I've been a Democratic Party activist since the age of nine, but this is an opportunity for the party to turn a new page, to have a fresh start. And I do believe that we need more people to run for office. I look around this room right now. There are so many people in this room not only qualified but eligible to run and we need them and i say why you because there's no one better and why now because tomorrow's not soon enough now let me remind you that the question was what does the party stand for and this was her response she espoused platitudes she just randomly talked about well we had elections right we know that we had elections donna brazil we're we're all aware of that fact um <laughs> But the question was what the party stands for, and she had no answer like everyone else. So this is something that wasn't too surprising. But when it got to the 2016 election, Trevor Noah questioned her about the DNC's bias against Bernie Sanders. And this is what Noah said. He said it felt like the DNC was not running itself like a democratic organization. You are someone who's been involved for a long time, like on the real. Would you say that the Democratic Party was trying to sabotage Bernie Sanders? Would you say the Democratic Party, before he entered the race, was an organization that said, hey, Hillary is our person, we don't care who joins the race? Now, Brazil then responded by saying, well, as you well know, to win the nomination, you must have the delegates, and Bernie fell short. That's the simple equation. But Noah thankfully followed up by saying, well, some people would argue that he fell short because he wasn't given the same support that Hillary Clinton was. And this was her response. She states, Hillary has been involved in the party for 25 years. There are people who have known her for most of her adult life, and they supported her. But look, 
I would not sell Bernie short. What Bernie Sanders did was revolutionary. And then she went on to praise Bernie Sanders, which is interesting. Now, she eventually addressed the failures of the Democratic Party. And for the most part, she was actually pretty reasonable. However, she got to a portion of her response about millennials. And she basically insinuated that millennials are in part culpable for Hillary Clinton's loss because they didn't get out to vote. And Trevor Noah said, well, you know, it's easy to sideline millennials, but they read the WikiLeaks emails and they saw that you gave Hillary Clinton questions ahead of a town hall. Now, this was her response to that. She said, you know, I can do some confession here. Bless me, Father, I've sinned. I promise not to do it again. Okay, well, first of all, I didn't have my hands in the cookie jar. I'm an operative. I'm a strategist. And part of what my role was, in addition to being a quote-unquote political pundit, was to help advance the cause of justice and equality, okay? So think about, we have six debates. I started to fight for more debates. I started to fight to ensure that Bernie and Hillary had an opportunity to talk about these issues, talk about the Flint water crisis, talk about criminal justice reform, and that was my role. The WikiLeaks version is the Russian version. My version is that. Had you seen my emails to Bernie, you would have known that I was communicating with Bernie as much as I was communicating with Hillary and Martin O'Malley because that's what you do. I'm a Democratic Party strategist. So by saying, you know, bless me, Father, I've sinned, and she was saying this, you know, being half serious, but she was inadvertently admitting that she was guilty of cheating Bernie Sanders and giving Hillary Clinton a town hall question in advance of the town hall. But what she did to illustrate her point was she took a piece of paper and she tore it in half and then she handed it to Trevor Noah and she suggested that we only got half of the truth. And, you know, to see the whole truth, what you really have to do is you got to come to Donna Brazil, too. So she then put both pieces of paper back together again, as if she said something substantive, but it really wasn't coherent like she thought it was. But Trevor Noah then followed up with a really hard-hitting journalistic response, asking, so you're going to write a book? And her answer was, hell yes. So, I mean, Trevor Noah kind of guided her into answering this question, but then he completely abandoned the question and the subject altogether and actually changed the subject once, you know, Donna Brazil started to kind of fall down the hole and she couldn't really redeem herself. She started to kind of admit her guilt and she obviously was appearing very disingenuous. She talks about how she helped Bernie Sanders as well. But Donna, there's something that you can do. If you did, in fact, try to help out Bernie Sanders as much as you helped out Hillary Clinton, you can release those emails. You can say, look, here's one example of a communication between uh, my team and Bernie Sanders team as to how I was giving him advice. But we know that that's not the case, Donna. We know that you were in the tank for Hillary Clinton. Now, what she said next made absolutely no sense to me. Uh, and really, I, I don't know what she was trying to communicate here. This is at uh, timestamp 1450. So if you actually want to see what she's talking about here, I, I would highly advise you to watch the segment because this, you know, this was a piece of work. So finally, this is what she kind of closes with. She states, the truth is, is that politics is a hard-fought game, and when you're in the battle of fighting to make sure that you have inclusion, to make sure you have diversity, to make sure you have not just the kind of communication, but the kind of conversation with voters, you want to make sure that those kind of topics that is out there. So, Again, this doesn't really make sense. She continues, The question that you raised with me, you didn't raise it that way. You know how my boo would do it. Because you're trying to be my priest. Sister, did you give out something? No, baby, I ain't gave nothing. I didn't... <laughs> I didn't have nothing to give you. But what I did stir was something that you could cook with. And baby... What you could cook with was burning all over the stove. And the reason why you took a piece of... <laughs> 
And the reason why you took a piece of it was because it smells so good and that all you could do was dip your finger and want more. <laughs> Donna, nobody knows what you're talking about. <laughs> if you're a democratic strategist and this is the type of analogy that you use uh, to kind of help candidates, then wow, this is, you know, no wonder why the Democratic Party is losing Nobody knows what you're talking about. And she says, you know, I ain't gave nothing. That's, that's her response verbatim. Uh, but a couple of minutes ago, she said, you know, well, bless me, Father, I have sinned. But apparently if she's talking to her boo, then she she didn't do anything wrong. I don't know what she's trying to say. This is completely incoherent. 1450 is the timestamp. If you actually want to watch uh, this segment, made absolutely no sense whatsoever. So, I mean, in one moment, she appears to be admitting her guilt. And then in another moment, she... I guess is saying that she didn't give Hillary Clinton a town hall question in advance, and then she goes on this incoherent tirade. I have no clue what she's trying to communicate here, but it made no sense. And wow, was this cringeworthy. You, you have to watch it and see for yourself, because I feel like by reading this quote to you, you're going to think I'm making this up or I, <laughs> I'm exaggerating. This is what she said. Verbatim. Now, I, I may have not gotten the delivery right, but I'm trying to be clear and, you know, communicate what she's saying. But wow, Donna the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> so the implication here is that, you know, what she did, I mean, overall is it wasn't really that bad because she wanted to help Democrats look good in general. So, I mean, if you saw the emails that she was sending to Bernie Sanders, well, you know what? You would have thought that maybe she was even biased in his favor. But in one of the emails, Donna, you literally said that you would cuss the Bernie people out. Your establishment through and through, and not a single person believes that you had any interest in helping Bernie Sanders. So this attempt here to repair your public image is not going to work because one, um, nobody knows what you're talking about. You went into some weird cooking analogy and it was, the way that she said it was awkwardly sexual and it made me cringe really hard. Second of all, you have no substance. What you're saying here makes no sense. Did you or did you not give him the question? We know that in an op-ed that she wrote for Time Magazine, she claims that she does, and she says that she's going to regret it forever. So, which is it, Donna? Did you give the question or did you not? Because we're kind of getting a wishy-washy response from you, and nobody really knows what you're talking about because your answer here was completely incoherent. So, I don't think that this is going to do you any good, and I don't know why you're trying to repair your public image. You were fired from CNN. You were one of the many people in the establishment and the media that cheated Bernie Sanders and tried to give Hillary Clinton an unfair advantage. I don't think there's really anything that you can do or any reason for you to repair your public image. I mean, are you going to run for office? Are you going to have any part in the Democratic Party? Because if so, then that shows you don't really care about the party because what you're looking out for is yourself and not the party because you are a divisive, toxic figure in politics. So if you honestly care about diversity and equality, which you say you do. You said that you gave Hillary Clinton a question because you care about diversity and criminal justice reform. Well, if that were the case, then you would leave the party and just get out of politics because nobody believes anything that you're saying, Donna. We're not buying it. You were exposed as a liar, and the best thing that you can do right now for the country and yourself is to retire and get out of the public spotlight. The vote to repeal the Affordable Care Act has been postponed until March 30th because as of now, it might not actually have the votes to pass. And furthermore, they're also postponing this vote, presumably because if you repeal the Affordable Care Act without actually having a replacement, 
that will be an unmitigated disaster, and Republicans will undoubtedly pay a huge political price because of it. Now, the problem is that if you repeal the Affordable Care Act and this new health care bill, which the, the prospect that it actually will pass is diminishing every single day, doesn't go through, then you just repeal the Affordable Care Act and you throw millions of people off of their current health insurance. They lose their subsidy. So that is something you don't want to do. And as this new bill that they've proposed loses popularity, and even as more conservatives come out against it, well, repealing the Affordable Care Act becomes more and more like a dim-witted decision, hence why I think it was postponed. Now, Bernie Sanders was on MSNBC to talk about the new health care bill, and he completely shredded it. I think it's probably wrong to refer to this legislation as a health care plan. Its primary purpose is to give some $300 billion in tax breaks over a 10-year period to the wealthiest 2%. It is a tax plan to help the very wealthy and the pharmaceutical industry and the insurance companies with huge tax breaks. In terms of the essence of their so-called plan, as you know, they're going to throw some 24 million people off of health insurance, defund Planned Parenthood, and according to the AARP, if you are 64 years of age and you're trying to get by on $25,000 a year, your health care costs are going to go up from $1,700 today to $13,000. And as you've just indicated, as difficult as the deductible situation is now, and it is a real problem for millions of people, this plan makes it even worse. What? <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I know you think that this is uh, primarily driven. At, at, this is basically a tax bill. It's a tax cut that's got health care wrapped around it. But if that's the case, why are they going through all the trouble to do this when they could just like straight up ha pass a tax cut? <laughs> I, well, I just they, don't get it. Well, Chris, trust me, they're going to do that as well. I mean, coming on down the pike a massive tax breaks for the wealthiest people in this country. But this is the start. But there is something else involved in this legislation. And that is, this is the implementation of the Koch brothers ideology, which wants to basically eliminate uh, every piece of legislation passed in the last 80 years, which protects the elderly and working people and children and the sick and the poor. These guys believe, and this is the Koch brothers, that government should not play a role in helping people in need or working people. Well, so what this bill does is decimates Medicaid. It will make Medicare less solvent, cuts three years of solvency off of Medicare. And they're going to come back with more and more cuts to programs that working people need. And by the way, remember, this is from a president who campaigned, the guy who campaigned as a champion of the working class. This health care proposal and other their budget will be horrific for working class families all over well, this country. Well, let me so everything that Bernie Sanders is saying is exactly what every single Democrat should be saying. They should all listen to what he's saying and use that same rhetoric because Bernie Sanders is correct here. And, you know, one part of this interview was interesting. Chris Hayes said, well, you know, why would they not just pass a tax cut for the rich? Why would they have to go through all the trouble 
of making this about healthcare. And, you know, it showed that he's naive because they always do this. They put tax cuts for the rich in all types of bills. Uh, this is the way that Washington works. You're a political pundit on MSNBC. How do you not know this? But, I mean, they do this all the time. And Bernie Sanders even stated they will. They'll do a standalone tax cut, but another tax cut. I mean, in some, if you take all the tax cuts that they squeeze into bills, well, you have a pretty big uh, portion of uh, money that's going to be funneled back to the billionaire wealthy class. So this is the way that they operate. Now, one thing that Bernie said I wasn't so sure about, he states that, you know, um, even though this is the type of legislation that the Koch brothers support, I don't necessarily believe that the Koch brothers are backing this bill because they're apparently threatening to withhold funding from Republicans who do support this bill. But I mean, all of this points to the elephant in the room with Bernie Sanders talking about how shitty this healthcare bill is and how Obamacare is broken and needs to be repaired. This all points to single payer as the end all be all. I mean, I think that at this point, the American people should accept nothing less than a single payer system because how... How many more bankruptcies, how many more deaths do we have to witness in this country before we get our act together and join every other modern industrialized nation and offer single-payer healthcare to every single citizen? I have no problem paying more in taxes if I don't have to pay for my monthly healthcare premium, which is already too expensive. And by the way, my deductible is 6500 I can't afford that. So if I have a medical emergency, I risk going bankrupt. Some people who don't have insurance or still do have insurance end up going bankrupt anyway, or they die. This is not what you are supposed to do if you're the government. As government, it's your duty to take care of citizens. You take our money, taxes in return for goods and services. And part of that is, you know, you have a military, so you protect us from external threats. And also, you make sure that we don't die if we get sick. I think it's pretty simple. Philosophically, I don't see how you can be against healthcare. And just morally, how can you be against the single-payer system? It, how can anyone be against this? The only people who are against this are stooges of the health insurance industry. These politicians take money from the health insurance companies and the pharmaceutical companies, and then they do their bidding. And they know that they have to craft healthcare policy within the confines of the private insurance industry, which continues to rip us off, because, you know, if they create a single-payer system, then that whole insurance industry goes away. It becomes non-existent. And they don't want that. And the health insurance industry, certainly they see single-payer as an existential threat, and they should, because they would go away because of it. But when it comes to a capitalistic society, yes, we're going to economize certain things. Healthcare is not one of them. The goal of healthcare should not be to increase profits. The goal of healthcare is to be to provide health care to people. It's in the name. Care. We give care to people. That's the operative term here. And you can't do that if you prioritize money over the well-being of people. So what Bernie Sanders is doing here... I think it's important because, you know, what he says has a lot of weight behind it. He's the most popular politician in the country. And as he continues to stump for single-payer healthcare system, as Americans continue to realize that they're being screwed over and they're getting a bad deal, they're not getting what the Canadians or the British are getting, they're beginning to realize that single-payer is a necessity and we have to demand it. We should accept nothing less. You've all heard me say this before. Moving from an opposition party to a governing party comes with growing pains. And, well... We're feeling those growing pains today. We came really close today, but we came up short. I spoke to the president just a little while ago, and I told him that the best thing I think to do is to pull this bill, and he agreed with that decision. 
I will not sugarcoat this. This is a disappointing day for us. Doing big things is hard. All of us, all of us, myself included, we will need time to reflect on how we got to this moment, what we could have done to do it better. But ultimately, this all kind of comes down to a choice. Are all of us willing to give a little to get something done? Are we willing to say yes to the good, to the very good, even if it's not the perfect? Because if we're willing to do that, we still have such an incredible opportunity in front of us. Anderson Cooper recently did an interview with Nancy Pelosi, uh, and this, this really irritated me because Democrats continue to get stumped over and over by simple questions because they refuse to coordinate with each other and actually come up with one cohesive message. So, for example, political pundits keep asking them in interviews, what does the party stand for? And they always get stumped because they don't really stand for anything, but they can't even come up with a contrived bullshit response. Now, the new thing that I think will be stumping Democrats is who is the party leader? And this is what Anderson Cooper asked. It's a, it's a pretty simple question. It's, it's a question that you can just literally say factually well it's it's chuck schumer who is the senate minority leader it's tom perez who's the dnc chair it's a simple question but yet when anderson cooper asked this question to nancy pelosi she was stumped she had no clue how to respond the leader of the democratic party right now well president obama was the president of the united states until just a matter of a weeks ago i i don't think that he can be dismissed as the leader of the democratic party a hillary clinton did not win the election, but a respected leader. But we have we have leaders for all different aspects of it. The Democratic Party is a congressional party, and we have leaders in Congress. It is a gubernatorial party, and leaders. But, but, but on the state level, it is a party which has suffered tremendous losses uh, in, in the last couple of years. Even it has, under but Obama. but uh, we have a plan to address that. So there's not one standard bearer for the for that you see as the leader of the Democratic. Well, they, party. we're not in a presidential. Uh, we're not in a presidential time. It, just finally, when you think about 2020, when you think about the next presidential race, I mean, how do, do you think Donald Trump is going to make it four years? Do you think? I don't know. It's up to him. It's up to him if he obeys the law. But the, uh, I'm not thinking of 2020. I'm thinking of 2018, a matter of a year and a half from now, but almost a little more than a year and a half from now, uh, the referendum, the first referendum on Donald Trump will come forward. Nancy. How is that a hard question to answer? I mean, she literally cited President Obama, someone who is done with politics, and Hillary Clinton. Okay, this is easy, Nancy. I mean, if you wanted to go the factual route, like I said, you just do Chuck Schumer, um, Tom Perez. But what you could say is, well, you know, the de facto leader of the party is Bernie Sanders. He may not necessarily be a registered Democrat, but he represents the core ideals that our base and the party stands for. You could say something like that, but instead she said, well, you know that poll last week that showed that Hillary Clinton is the most unpopular politician in the country? That's our leader, not the most popular politician in the country, Bernie Sanders. We're with the person who people don't like. Nancy, why? <laughs> Why do you continue to do this to yourselves? I mean, it's as if they want to ensure that the Democrats don't even have a chance in 2018, and I don't think they do unless we actually have progressives with justice Democrats. But I mean, at this point, they're really setting themselves up for another bloodbath, and this is their own fault. It's because they have no message. They don't know what they stand for. They don't know who to unify behind, 
And even if, you know, they're just putting forth token progressives like Keith Ellison and Bernie Sanders for show and not really embracing their values, I mean, some of them are so lost they can't even think of a bullshit response like Nancy Pelosi. And she is in a leadership position. She is the House Minority Leader. How do you not know how to answer this question? Now, if Anderson Cooper would have followed up and said, well, you know, why not say Bernie Sanders? Because he's the most popular politician in the country. Don't you want to get behind someone with that appeal? She would say, well, you know, Bernie Sanders, he's not, he's not a Democrat, so he can't be the leader of a party that he's not a part of, right? I mean, this is the same thing that they always say. They say, you know, he's not a real Democrat because they don't want to say the actual truth. They don't want to tell you why they won't embrace Bernie Sanders. It's because he threatens their relationship with multinational corporations. If Bernie Sanders becomes the de facto leader of the party, which he's the de facto leader, but I mean, if he's given a real leadership position, then that threatens the money train that they want to keep rolling in because these big banks who donate to the Democratic Party, these health insurance companies that donate to the Democratic Party, they'd say, well, you have Bernie Sanders, someone who wants to put us out of business as your party leader. We are not going to give you money any longer. And that's why they don't want to embrace Bernie Sanders. It's extremely simple. You always just have to follow the money. If you're confused as to why a politician is doing something seemingly stupid, they're not stupid. There's just something nefarious behind it. It's the money. It's the greed. It's the oligarchy that they want to maintain because they think that's going to help them get elected. It's going to help them keep their jobs. Now, she also implied that 2018 will be a referendum on President Trump. And you literally just tried this strategy. Hillary Clinton tried to make the 2016 election a referendum on Donald Trump, and that did not happen. You can't just say this election is about whether or not you support or don't support Donald Trump. You actually have to offer us something. And the fact that they can't say what they stand for, the fact that they don't have a leader, or they won't say Bernie Sanders is the de facto leader, is because they have nothing. They are just a corporate shell of a party. They're a shell of a party for corporate America. You have to have a message, Nancy. Even if you have something that's bullshit, that is contrived, that nobody would believe, you have to have a message. And the fact that you don't even have that shows that you guys are completely incompetent and it's really no surprise why you guys keep losing. I mean, since 2010, you lost the House. In 2014, you lost the Senate. In 2016, you lost the White House. And throughout that time, slowly but surely, you lost more governorships, more state legislatures. How many seats in state legislatures across the country do you have to lose before you realize, okay, we actually have to do something for the American people. We have to throw them a bone once in a while. It's just, they're an embarrassment. They really are. They're an international embarrassment. Donald Trump and the Republicans have made it very clear that they will be attempting to dismantle Dodd-Frank. Now, Dodd-Frank was a piece of legislation that was a moderate reform on Wall Street. It, you know, it provided Congress and the president with some additional checks on Wall Street, but really it didn't sufficiently rein them in. It's better than nothing, and, you know, we don't want to repeal it and go backwards, but the Republicans are in fact trying to do that. Now, there's one particular provision within Dodd-Frank that mandates CEOs disclose the pay ratio between them and their employees. Now, this is now being delayed by the Securities and Exchange Commission recently because of, quote, unanticipated compliance difficulties. So, because presumably you can't get CEOs to comply with this rule, you're just going to delay it altogether or potentially do away with it. No, the point of Dodd-Frank was to empower Congress and the president to have control over Wall Street, to have some control over Wall Street. So if you can't get them to comply, which seems to be the issue here, then you make them comply. But, I mean, if you're a big bank in the United States of America, you can do whatever you want. You can break the law, buy politicians, have the taxpayers bail you out after you crash the economy, and nobody from your company, not a single executive, will be put in jail they have unbelievable, unchecked power in this country. 
Now, in response to this, there are a couple of senators like Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Jeff Merkley, Al Franken. They've penned a letter condemning this decision. Now, Newsweek explains the letter said that the rule would be an important tool for investors, while noting that in 2015, the average S&P 500 CEO made $335 for every dollar a typical worker earned, a statistic pulled from the AFL-CIO. Pay ratio disclosure helps investors evaluate the relative value a CEO creates which facilitates better checks and balances against insiders paying themselves runaway compensation, wrote the senators. Now, I just want to pause for a moment and reflect on that pay gap. So, CEOs make $335 for every $1 that the typical worker makes. Think about how crazy that pay gap is. Are they really that productive to where they deserve this? I mean, and also think about the difference that they can make on the lives of their workers if they just took like $175 for every dollar that their workers make and they gave the rest of that money to their workers. I mean, th this is greed that is so bad that can only occur in an unchecked, unfettered capitalistic society and it's unacceptable. You have to rein them in because this type of greed, this type of income inequality that we're seeing, which is record-breaking, is a problem because it's going to lead to an economic collapse. If the poor people have so little purchasing power, then that hurts the economy for everyone, including these greedy elites, because lo and behold, I mean, this is economics 101, if the poor don't have money, then they can't stimulate the economy by spending money and buying TVs and Xboxes. But if the rich have money, well, what they do is they just sit on that money. They throw it in their bank account and they don't spend it. They buy a yacht every now and then. They buy a mansion every now and then. But I mean, the, the overall economy... It suffers if you have this level of income and wealth inequality. So I just wanted to pause and talk about that because $335 to one, that's insane. It's so unfair. It's insane for the amount of work and time that these workers dedicate to these companies. This is just really egregious to me. Now, as a result of this, Bernie Sanders is coming out swinging because the pro-corporate policies of Donald Trump, I mean, after saying he's going to drain the swamp, this is really unacceptable. It's unacceptable and everyone in the country should be calling him out right now because of his just outright lie uh, and the deception, how, how he really duped over the American people. And Bernie Sanders is taking off the gloves. He's done with uh, Donald Trump's bullshit and he's now challenging Donald Trump. Bernie Sanders states, President Trump thinks he's a tough guy because he's taking on farm workers who make nine or ten bucks an hour. He's a tough guy because he can throw moms and dads out of this country, Sanders said. Well, I say to Mr. Trump, if you're such a tough guy, why don't you take on the insurance companies and the drug companies in Wall Street? Instead of appointing half of Wall Street on your cabinet, why don't you take on the crooks on Wall Street who have destroyed this economy? I like this a lot because part of Donald Trump's appeal presumably to conservatives, is that, you know, they really, they like that Donald Trump appears to be strong, you know, but really he's not. Uh, he has a big mouth, but I guess if you have a big mouth, then that counts as you being strong. But he's not a tough guy. This guy is a puppet. During the campaign, he berated all the other conservatives, the establishment conservatives like Jeb Bush, Marco Rubio, because they were puppets to donors like Sheldon Adelson and whatnot. And now what does Donald Trump do? He talks about draining the swamp and stopping all that corruption. He talked about self-funding his campaign. And you might as well have just taken all that money, Trump. We know that you were taking money from multinational corporations and billionaires like Shel Sheldon Adelson yourself. But you might as well just have taken the money because you are 
as big as a puppet as anyone else in government has been. So you didn't drain the swamp, you filled the swamp, and you're a corrupt asshole who's a billionaire oligarch who doesn't deserve to be in power because you're not qualified to be in power. You were born with a silver spoon in your mouth, and you know nothing about government, you watch Fox News, and that's where you get your information. And what's problematic about that is that people who watch Fox News are less educated than people who watch no news at all. So someone who is less educated than people who don't pay attention to the news is our president of the United States. That's the country that we're living in. We have a billionaire oligarch who is creating policy that affects millions of Americans who are just ordinary people. How is this oligarch going to know what the American people need and want and desire? Well, it's because he doesn't know that. Hence why he's screwing us over. And he continues to pretend as though he's just this courageous, principled politician. You're not principled, Donald Trump. You are the definition of corruption. You are everything wrong with politics in America. And the fact that you were able to run because you're a billionaire is what's wrong with this country. We have become an oligarchy and we've got to stop this. So I, I think that Bernie Sanders challenge here, it, it's truthful. If you're such a tough guy, then why don't you stand up to the special interests that continue to control Washington that you railed against? You don't want to do that because you're not a tough guy, Donald Trump. You're not. You are a bad person. You are an objectively bad person who believes in harming the poor and the middle class so that way your rich friends could get more tax cuts. Unacceptable. And whenever you do this, we will continue to call you out. I don't typically like to create segments exclusively about a tweet or tweets, but Representative Keith Ellison, now Deputy DNC Chair, tweeted out something that really rubbed me the wrong way, and I felt like I had to address it. So he states that he can't understand why some, thank goodness only a few, people have a bigger beef with Hillary Rodham Clinton than Trump. I just don't get it. So... Make no mistake about it, he's calling out progressives with this tweet. He's not talking about Republicans. He's insinuating that progressives dislike Hillary Clinton more than Donald Trump. Well, first of all, politically, progressives are more aligned with Hillary Clinton than Donald Trump. I don't think many of us would deny that fact. But he tweeted out before that, you know, if you buy into the idea that Hillary Clinton is corrupt, then you're just buying 25 years of right-wing smears. It's not because you're an intelligent human being that did your own research, it's because you're gullible. I mean, this is the constant theme that we see. If you dislike Hillary Clinton, there's something wrong with you, not Hillary Clinton. Well, I've got news for you. Hillary Clinton is now the least popular politician in the country with the highest net unfavorability rating. This is according to a Suffolk University poll. So either everyone in the country is dumb or... We're right, and Hillary Clinton just is a bad politician. Now, I think the first response that I saw really nailed it. <laughs> this individual states, oh, well, because she's fine with rigging an election in her favor and against the man who would have beat Trump. Duh. That's great. And the reason why people are so angry with Hillary Clinton is because it was her narcissism, her entitlement, her belief that she was just entitled to the position in the White House, entitled to the Oval Office, that facilitated the election of Donald Trump. I mean, everyone in the media, Hillary Clinton herself, tried to perpetuate this idea that she was inevitable. You're not inevitable in a democracy. Nobody is inevitable in a democracy. And if you try to do that, you turn voters off. And furthermore, we know that Hillary Clinton doesn't represent our ideals. And if Hillary Clinton and the Democratic Party got their shit together in the first place, Donald Trump would never be the president. If Hillary Clinton didn't rig the election, like this tweet here says, Bernie Sanders would have won. So, I mean... Keith, spare me the outrage if you're offended at the fact that we're pissed off that Hillary Clinton ruined it for all of us because of her own narcissism. And, I mean, 
the thing that separates progressives like myself and progressives like Keith Ellison is that when the establishment screws us over, we're willing to speak up. But like Keith Ellison, you know, they're willing to screw him over because, I mean, Keith Ellison announced that he would run to be the DNC chair. And then a month later, when they realized that Keith Ellison was gaining momentum, they pushed Tom Perez into the race and he ended up winning, screwed over uh, Keith Ellison, and they made him the deputy DNC chair. They made up a position so he can be the token progressive and trot him out and say, hey, we're like this guy, when in actuality, behind the scenes, they're still corrupt corporatists. So we speak out on our own behalf. We actually stand up for ourselves, Keith. You don't do that. You like to cower and fear behind the establishment because you think that they're so powerful and they are powerful but we're not afraid to speak truth to power unlike you you don't stand up for yourself you allow the establishment to screw you over and you pretend to be united you pretend as though oh i'm so thankful that they awarded me this position with no power after they screwed me over when i was gaining momentum to win when i had the endorsements so keith maybe if you had a spine and you actually stood up to the establishment like real progressives do who call out Hillary Clinton, then we'd be in a different position. Maybe you would have won. But no, anyone who criticized you, you went and, uh, like Haim Sabani, called you an anti-Semite, and you went and you broke bread with him. You said, you know, I talked to him, we had a phone call, we're, we're repairing our relationship. Bullshit. You have to fight fire with fire. You've got to be a progressive with a spine. You can't just cower in fear to establishment officials. And the fact that you think that we should just take getting screwed over by the establishment lying down. Well, it's not an effective strategy. You've, in fact, proven that it's not an effective strategy because look at where you are now. You're the deputy DNC chair, not the DNC chair. So I'm sorry, but nobody is buying what you're selling. You need to stop trying to convince us that Hillary Clinton is not a corrupt politician. We don't like Hillary Clinton because Hillary Clinton is not a liberal. She's a conservative she is a conservative politician. She's center-right. She is more aligned with the British Prime Minister than actual progressives in the country like Bernie Sanders. So, you know, obviously this tweet definitely rubbed me the wrong way. But Keith, you've got to stop talking down to progressives and berating progressives like this if you claim to be a progressive. Because Hillary Clinton, she's unpopular for a reason. She lost for a reason. And it's you, not us, that's not really seeing what's going on here. Trevor Tim of The Guardian wrote an outstanding piece about how it's perplexing that everyone in the country seems to love Bernie Sanders, with the exception of the Democratic Party establishment, who actually stands to gain a lot by embracing his message. So, Tim states, if you look at the numbers, Bernie Sanders is the most popular politician in America, and it's not even close. Yet, bizarrely, the Democratic Party, out of power across the country and increasingly irrelevant, still refuses to embrace him and his message. It's increasingly clear that they do so at their own peril. A new Fox News poll out this week shows Sanders has a 28 net favorability rating among the U.S. population, dwarfing all other elected politicians on both ends of the political spectrum, and he's even more popular among the vaunted independents, where he is at a mind-boggling plus 41. One would think with numbers like that, Democratic politicians would be falling all over themselves to be associated with Sanders, especially considering the party as a whole is more unpopular than the Republicans and even Donald Trump right now. Yet, instead of embracing his message, the establishment wing of the party continues to resist him at almost every 
return, and they seem insistent that they don't have to change their ways to gain back the support of huge swaths of the country. They've steadfastly refused to take giant corporations head-on in the public sphere and wouldn't even return to an Obama-era rule that banned lobbyist money from funding the DNC that was rescinded last year, and despite the broad popularity of the government guaranteeing health care for everyone, they still have not made any push for a Medicare for All plan that Sanders has long called for as a rebuttal to Republicans' attempt to dismantle Obamacare. Democrats seem more than happy to put all of the blame of the 2016 election on a combination of Russia and James Comey and have engaged in almost zero introspection on the root causes of the larger reality. They are also out of power in not just the presidency, but both also houses of Congress, governorships, and state houses across the country as well. In the long term, change may be coming for Democrats, whether they like it or not. Sanders loyalists are quietly attempting to take over many local Democratic Party positions around the country. While Ellison lost the race for the DNC chair, it was incredibly close, closer than Sanders came to beating Clinton. And Sanders supporters are already organizing primary challenges to incumbent Democrats who aren't sufficiently opposing Trump. One thing's for sure, Democrats who refuse to change do so at their own peril. So I thought that this was a phenomenal piece. It was written so well and it really articulates all of the frustrations that progressives have tried to communicate to Democrats, but they just continue to plug their ears and ignore us. So uh, one point he makes here is that how Democrats think that they don't have to change anything. Uh, they just have to continue doing the same exact thing uh, to win. But that's that's not the way this is going to work in the short term. I mean, certainly long term. What they're trying to do is wait it out. They are just going to continue to be just a little bit less shitty than Republicans because they think that people will get so sick of Donald Trump that they can put forth any corporatist Democrat and we'll all be falling over ourselves to vote for that individual. But, I mean... That's not going to happen for a long time. What you're setting us up for is eight years of Donald Trump or 12 years, potentially, of a Republican White House. And that is something that is not acceptable. You have to embrace change. And I mean, to this point here that he's making, we saw this with Nancy Pelosi, who doesn't want to change, who rather than saying that, you know, Bernie Sanders is the new de facto leader of the party, it's really Obama and Clinton who are the leaders. <laughs> They are so resistant to change that it's embarrassing. I mean, as focus group driven as the Democratic Party is, and for all the consultants that they hire, you would think that they would want to embrace Bernie Sanders. And like you said, they would be falling all over themselves to be like Bernie Sanders and associate themselves with Bernie Sanders. But they don't like Bernie Sanders because Bernie Sanders threatens the status quo. He would be someone who would intimidate the donor class. And the donors are what's funding the Democratic Party. And I love how he talks about, you know, they, they've had almost zero introspection. Because this is so true. I mean, they blame everyone but themselves for losing the 2016 election. But they've been losing. They've lost basically every single election. 2010, they lost the House. In 2014, they lost the Senate. In 2016, they lost the White House. They keep losing. They are losers. Yet, they're the ones who are right. We're the ones who are wrong. Anyone who tries to challenge these corporatist Democrats, they're the ones who are wrong. You should be attacking Donald Trump. Focus your energy on Trump. But, I mean, they fail to realize that if Democrats actually got their act together, the Republicans would not be in control. Donald Trump would not be the president. If Bernie Sanders was the party's nominee, if they didn't try to rig it against Bernie Sanders, then we would be in a much different situation right now. And if someone as popular as Bernie Sanders ran to be president... 
I think it's the case that they probably would have kept the Senate because if you have a really popular politician at the top of the ticket, then that influences the lower level races as well. But I mean, they, they don't care about this. They got someone who was already politically damaged and flawed like Hillary Clinton, who was being investigate, investigated by the FBI at the time she announced her campaign. And they said, you know, this is the person, she's more electable. If we go with Bernie Sanders, we'll lose its risk. They didn't listen to anything we had to say. They didn't realize that there was an anti-establishment wave in the country. And we were just sick of the status quo because you establishment idiots keep messing up the country for us. So, I mean, I think that Tim is correct here when he states that, you know, by refusing to embrace Bernie Sanders, they're really hurting themselves more than anyone. He's 100% right because the Democratic Party, you know, I'm, I'm starting to think that maybe they're not so incompetent as they are just evil and not wanting to change because they know what they're doing. They're not dumb. I think they know what they're doing. I don't I don't know if that's true with all of them because some of them certainly are pretty dumb. Uh, but, I, you know, I think this is something that's much more nefarious. If you want an answer as to why something is the way it is and it seems weird, you just got to follow the money. And with Democrats, it's all about money. They don't want to turn off the money faucet that's raining down on them. They want to continue to keep this cash train flowing. But by doing so... They will not be politically relevant for a while. During Real Time with Bill Maher's overtime segment, they had a discussion about potential 2020 presidential contenders. And throughout the course of this discussion, they said things that ranged from just weird to downright tone deaf. So I'll go ahead and play the clip for you and then I'll discuss where they went wrong. Who is going to be the Democratic candidate in 2020. We cannot fuck this up. And we cannot, we also can't live under the illusion that the electorate is going to go for somebody who isn't charismatic, okay, and a great salesman. That you can't, Hillary Clinton proved, you can be completely competent, you can't win an election with, I well, know I'm not that great, but this guy's but Bill, not. first of all, I want to be saying, you know, you, you have overdone this. Uh, oh, how terrible it was. And, and, and this great, mighty Trump. It was the narrowest victory in American history. And still a victory. Bob. Yeah, but a very narrow one. And yeah. since then, he has alienated a lot of people. I don't know where, what world you guys live in, where you think he's so triumphant. Even the Wall Street uh, The Journal world where he's president every day? But, that, that totally is the world I live in. No, but that's not... No, you're living in a world in which he's not just the president, but he's a politically successful and mighty president, and it's the other way around. He's losing popularity. Wait, but he's not getting anything done. Of course, I wish he wasn't president. I worked very hard to try and stop him. But you've got to estimate where we are. To answer your question, by the way, it has never this far ahead of a presidential election been able to predict who the non-incumbent candidate of either party would I be. I know. I'm just, yeah, but I'm, just, I'm, I'm looking around, scouring the landscape. And I see nothing. I, mean, I know a guy. Please. I, th I think the people in this state do too. We we'll say that in Rhode Island, by the way. Gavin Newsom. We got a guy. We got a guy named Gavin Newsom. This guy should be president. He can win. He's going to be governor in 2018. And I know that's a short time just to be governor before you run. I don't give a fuck. His slogan should be, hello, I must be going. This pessimism and this fear, you talk about, oh, liberals cry. You guys are cowering before a guy who's a paper tiger. I'm yeah, not... he got elected, but he has been very ineffective and, and generated okay. and, an awful lot of And opposition. what about after he starts the war with North Korea? How powerful will he be then? Because once the war starts, you know, presidents seem to be able to get whatever they want. I don't believe he's going to start a war with Iraq. I hope well, not. Say a By the way, George Bush I mean, he'd have to be crazy to do that. George Bush started a war with Iraq, and it didn't work out very well for the Republican Party. <laughs> he got, yeah. got re-elected handily. So when I watched this clip, it communicates to me that Bill Maher 
still doesn't really get it. Although he's getting closer and he's gotten close sometimes, and he did get it. I did consider him a progressive at one point. I still think that he doesn't really know what ordinary, non-wealthy Americans want. Now, everything that Barney Frank said was wrong, but thankfully they corrected him. And I think Barney Frank, I mean, I can't remember the last time he said something that wasn't completely stupid, but thankfully they corrected him. Now, getting to Bill Maher. Bill Maher said, we can't live under the illusion that the electorate is going to go for somebody who isn't. And when he said that, I thought he was going to say, who isn't a true progressive. But what he ended up saying was, who isn't charismatic. Bill... Bill, 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 Bill. Okay, so charisma, it certainly matters, right? I think that that is one component of what makes a successful political candidate. But what it really comes down to is the policy substance. I mean, voters are rational, they're self-interested, and they're about more than just superficial things about politicians like charisma. If you offer them something, then they will be responsive to that. Hence why Bernie Sanders was so successful. It's why he's the most popular politician in the country. Bernie Sanders is like 157 years old. He has not a shred of charisma in him. Yet, he's popular because he's offering the American people something that gives them hope, that makes them optimistic in a political time when we're just downright depressed. Now, as for Bill Maher's example, he chose Gavin Newsom. Now, it really frustrated me that throughout the course of this discussion, not a single person mentioned the most popular politician in the country. I was like pulling out my hair, and even though he's going to be 200 years old by the time 2020 rolls around, you still bring him up. You say, we want someone like Bernie Sanders, if not Bernie Sanders, to run, regardless of how old he is. Or we want someone exactly like him that embodies everything that Bernie Sanders uh, represents. They don't mention him. He mentions Gavin Newsom. Now, when it comes to Gavin Newsom, I'm split on Gavin Newsom, and I'll tell you why. So, Gavin Newsom is actually someone that I do think is politically progressive. So, he does support universal health care. He supports criminal justice reform. He supports paid family leave, a $15 minimum wage, universal pre-K, marijuana legalization. And he was actually one of the first in the Democratic Party to support marriage equality. So, I mean, I do like him. But with that being said, there are things about him that are unknown. We don't know anything about his foreign policy position, so I would have to see that because I think that's incredibly important. And also, seeing that he's similar to Bernie Sanders on policy, well, you'd think that he would have been a pretty strong Bernie Sanders surrogate during the campaign, but where was he? He wasn't stumping for Bernie. Well, that's because he endorsed Hillary Clinton over Bernie Sanders, even though he agrees with Bernie Sanders more politically. So what that tells me about Gavin Newsom is that he's a politically calculative politician. He's trying to make moves that will benefit his career. And he thought that since Hillary Clinton would most likely win, well, he'd have to get in good with the new White House administration. This is the same thing that Elizabeth Warren did. She didn't expect Bernie Sanders to win and she endorsed Hillary Clinton. She backed the wrong pony and this was a political miscalculation. So I kind of find him more like an Elizabeth Warren type of character, but instead of focusing more on Wall Street like Elizabeth Warren does, he focuses more on the issues that Bernie Sanders talks about. And Bernie Sanders talks about Wall Street, so I feel like he's a mix of Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, but I do like him, but I think that he's disingenuous, and he does come across as a rehearsed politician, and I think that unless he really hammers down on the policies, the base will see him as a smarmy Martin O'Malley slash Ted Cruz type of figure. But I mean, overall, if it does come to the policies, I actually like Gavin Newsom. But I don't like Gavin Newsom because of his charisma, Bill. I like him because of the policy positions that he has. I don't think that he's popular because he's a good speaker. I think he's popular because he's kind of a, a, a pioneer in the party. He's willing to take positions 
that the rest of the party and the political establishment aren't willing to uh, accept yet. And, and I find that admirable about him. But with Bill Maher, Bill, if you want to know what will get voters interested and excited about politics, you have to come up with a politician that is going to talk about the policies that will improve their lives. Hillary Clinton was an elitist candidate. We all knew she was in bed with Wall Street. She gave speeches to Goldman Sachs and refused to release those transcripts. That's a candidate that's not going to inspire anyone. And you thought that we would be inspired by her exclusively based on the fact that she would be the first woman president. Well, that's great, but you've got to offer us something else, Hillary. And Bill doesn't get this. He thinks that just because she was qualified and competent, well, that, you know, that should have resonated with voters, but it didn't, so we need someone with charisma. No, Bill. Competency, qualifications, those matter less than policy. It's all about the policy. And we actually have to believe that a candidate will back up those policies when they get in office. It can't be like Obama where you talk about progressive policies but then take money from Wall Street, for example, and then turn on us. That's not allowed anymore. That's not acceptable. So if he really wanted to float someone who was very progressive, he should have backed uh, Tulsi Gabbard. He should have said someone like Nina Turner. I think that Nina Turner would win in a landslide if she was the uh, Democratic Party nominee. And I think that even if she ran, I mean... How can you not like Nina Turner when you hear her speak? She has nothing but policy substance. She knows what average voters are going through because she talks to them. So Bill Maher, he doesn't get it, but he's getting there. I just wish that he would talk to real progressives and voters and grassroots people to know what we would want because he has a huge platform that could potentially boost us. And deep down, I think that he he's trying to do the right thing, but he's still missing the mark. A new Suffolk University poll found that Hillary Clinton's net unfavorable rating has surpassed that of Donald Trump and the GOP. So according to this poll, she is now the most unpopular politician in the country. Yet, in spite of this fact, she's chosen to, quote, come out of the woods and get back in the public spotlight. So her goal is to boost her public profile once again in an effort to shine a light on what's already happening around kitchen tables at dinners like this to help draw strength to enable everyone to keep going. Clinton is already scheduled to make several public appearances in the coming months, including giving the commencement address at her alma mater, Wellesley College, on May 26th, and the former Secretary of State spoke of increasing her public profile mere days after TMZ reported Clinton is thinking about running for mayor of New York City. However, people are now beginning to talk about the prospect of her running again in 2020 in spite of the fact that another poll released by Suffolk University, according to The Guardian, found that 62% of Democrats and independents do not want Hillary Clinton to run again. But in spite of this fact, there's a possibility that she might actually run again. Hillary Clinton is coming out of the woods and maybe getting ready to make a comeback. Rumors are now swirling that the failed presidential candidate could run again in 2020. Her former campaign manager saying don't rule anything out just yet. I think what matters right now, we've got to get to the bottom of what happened in 2016, then we can start worrying uh, about the next cycle. Clinton delivering a campaign-style speech in Pennsylvania over the weekend. It's only adding more fuel to the rumor. No, God! No, God, please, no! No! So, I mean, let's try to put together the pieces here. So, her campaign manager won't rule out the fact that she might run again. Uh, and furthermore, she hasn't unequivocally denounced the fact that she would run again. I mean, this is a rumor that's been swirling around since the election was over, like in December. So either she's not going to run, but wants us to think that she will for attention, or 
she's not shooting down this rumor because mother of God, she's actually going to run again. Now, the Hillary Clinton rumors are just one aspect of the story because there's another Clinton that we have to worry about, and I'm not talking about Bill. So, Chelsea Clinton is now rumored to be running for the Senate in 2020 if Kirsten Gillibrand, who occupied Hillary Clinton's seat when she was a senator, decides to run for president. Now, the question is, what qualifies Chelsea Clinton to be a senator? Well, her last name is Clinton, so you're just automatically in. Same thing like Trump and whatnot. If, you're, if your last name is Trump, you get a seat or you get an office at the White House if you're Ivanka. So, I mean, if you're rich, if you're powerful, your kids, they get a free ride. It's called nepotism. It's, you know, it's not really a shocker. But if anyone elects Chelsea Clinton, then come on. I think that New York voters are smarter than this. So I hope that they wouldn't fall for continuing this political dynasty that has done nothing but offer corporatism to the American people. Now, the question here is, what's the problem with this? Why am I talking about Hillary Clinton? Well, I'm talking about Hillary Clinton because as long as the Clintons have a place in American politics, they are emboldening Donald Trump. Yes, they are making him more powerful because their continued association with the Democratic Party signals to voters that they really aren't a party that's becoming more progressive. They're not the party of Bernie Sanders. They're still the party of Hillary Clinton and the party of corporate donations and unnecessary wars. And so long as the most unpopular politician in the country is involved with the affairs of the Democratic Party, which is already toxic, their brand can't recover. And nobody thinks that she's getting back in the public spotlight because she cares about the issues. She's doing this for her own narcissistic reasons, but what she's doing is hurting political discourse in America. We don't want someone to be the president or the mayor because they have power and wealth. We want someone to be the president if they represent our ideals. Now, unfortunately, Donald Trump duped over a lot of people. He's a billionaire, he's an oligarch, and he's not representing them. And I think he's showing that he's not representing them. But we don't want more of that. We need less of that. So the fact that Hillary Clinton may be marginally better than Donald Trump on certain issues doesn't make her someone who should be getting back involved in politics. If the Democratic Party ever wants to become politically viable again, they need to move towards a more Bernie Sanders progressive direction and not go back to Hillary Clinton, which made them incredibly unpopular. And to announce that you're coming out of the woods at a time when polls are showing that you are not popular at all, you're the most unpopular politician in the country... Uh, it, it makes no sense. Please, Hillary, go away. No, Nobody wants you to get in politics again, okay? Those people, the, the 48% or whatever, or is it 38%? Yeah, so it's 62% of Democratic and independent voters that don't want her to run again. So the 38%, don't listen to them. They don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> Please, don't run again. And whenever I talk about Hillary, they're like, well, you know, you must be afraid of Hillary Clinton because you keep talking about her. She must have power. She must intimidate you. Yeah, she's scary because she will facilitate another Donald Trump electoral victory. She needs to get out of politics and leave progressives to clean up the mess that she made. I don't want to clean up the mess. She made our job that much more difficult, but you got to stop, Hillary. It's time to stop. It is time to stop. It's time to get out of politics and retire. You are rich. Go to one of your many mansions and leave the party alone. Leave Americans alone. We don't believe you have anything to offer us. You're only doing this because you're a narcissist. Please, go away. So this week, the Senate confirmation hearings for Donald Trump's Supreme Court nominee Neil Gorsuch took place, and even prior to hearing him out at all, I thought that it was important for Democrats to oppose Neil Gorsuch because, you know, if Republicans blocked President Obama from fulfilling his constitutional obligation to fill a vacant seat on the Supreme Court, even if I disagreed with Merrick Garland, they blocked him from doing his job. So to approve 
of Neil Gorsuch and confirm him to the Supreme Court, you're rewarding record-breaking obstructionism from the Republicans. So I don't think we should be doing that. So on principle, I thought that we had a good reason to oppose him. But now that we actually heard him out, well, now we have sufficient grounds to oppose him on substance as well. So throughout the course of the hours and hours of hearings, to me, Neil Gorsuch came off as a really smug, abrasive, and evasive at times politician. And, you know, in a post-Citizens United era, his stance on money and politics is crucial. But Neil Gorsuch really proved that he's the poster child of corruption because there's a $10 million dark money campaign being spent to get him on the Supreme Court. Now, we don't know where the money came from, how many multinational corporations are bankrolling this effort to get him confirmed. But we do know that it sets up a conflict of interest because we know that these donations may influence his decisions as a Supreme Court justice. So this is a problem. Now, he was actually asked about his opinion as to why he thinks, uh, or whether or not this would be a problem, that there are groups spending millions of dollars trying to get him on the Supreme Court. His response was, it was downright sickening. It completely pissed me off. So take a look. How would we know that the partiality question in a recusal matter had been adequately addressed if we did not know who was spending all of this money to get you confirmed. Hypothetically, it could be one individual. Hypothetically, it could be your friend Mr. Anschutz. We don't know because it's dark money. But if you were to ever find that out, or even if you were to have suspicions, I think in any challenge as to whether recusal was appropriate or not, were that to happen, say, in a lower court, these would be facts that would be noteworthy and that we'd be entitled to have an answer to. So it's kind of odd to be sitting here in a United States Supreme Court nomination hearing with a $10 million spend taking place for you uh, out there in the political world and absolutely no idea who's behind it. Is that any cause of concern to you? Senator, I'm not sure what the question for me is. Is it any cause of concern to you that your nomination is the focus of a $10 million political spending effort and we don't know who's behind it? Senator, there's a lot about the confirmation process today that I regret. <laughs> a lot. Yeah? A lot. When Byron White sat here, it was 90 minutes. He was through this body in two weeks and he smoked cigarettes while he gave his testimony. There's a great deal about this process I regret. I regret putting my family through this. But to my question, Senator, huh. the fact of the matter is, it is what it is, and it's this body that makes the laws. There is an effort where dark money groups, we don't know where this money's coming from, billionaires, millionaires, they're spending millions of dollars to get you on the Supreme Court and your response is, it is what it is. So what Neil Gorsuch is saying here is that he doesn't believe that the American people should see who's funding him at a very minimum. I mean, it's, it's not a problem in his eyes that he's being funded at all, that there's groups spending money to get him on the Supreme Court, but he doesn't even believe that we should be able to see who's funding him and it's very crucial that we do see who's funding him because if, let's say, um, Walmart funds him, well, if a Supreme Court case involving Walmart comes up, then I want him to recuse himself. But now we'll never know 
who's funding Neil Gorsuch? We won't know if there's a conflict of interest, and we don't know if these donations will impact his rulings as a Supreme Court justice. But his response... It is what it is. If you don't like this corruption, if you don't like the dark money that's being spent to get me on the Supreme Court bench, tough shit. This response to me uh, leads me to believe that Neil Gorsuch is downright dangerous. He must be opposed at every step of the way, and I think it's incumbent on Democrats to do everything in their power to filibuster him. But, um, you know, while Democrats and progressives have sufficient reason to be completely terrified of him, well, Republicans are completely falling in love with him. Always started with a grunt. I mean, <laughs> that's how he started a conversation. It was like, hello. So what does the great Justice Gorsuch think about this one? <laughs> okay. Ha! Gay! Now, if you're wondering what the hell was going on there, that was Neil Gorsuch's response to a question asked by Ted Cruz about what it was like to work for Byron White, the great By Byron White. Uh, and then Ted Cruz also asked really substantive questions about, well, you know, I heard that you take your staffers out uh, to uh, teach them about cattle wrangling or some shit like that. The, I mean, these are the questions that are being asked. You have $10 million being spent of money that is coming from who knows where. Uh, and this is what the Republicans are worried about. Will you tell me about, you know, what it's like to work for, uh, Byron White and what his farts smell like? They don't care about the dark money. They don't care about the corruption. It is what it is, according to Republicans. So, Neil Gorsuch represents everything that's wrong with American politics. Everything. And he has to be opposed at all costs. Now, thankfully, Democrats are coming out strong against him, and they're pledging to filibuster Gorsuch. At least this is what Chuck Schumer is saying. And Bernie Sanders is also voicing his opposition to him and says that he will vote no. But I mean, Democrats... You cannot go back on your word. You have to be strong here. There cannot be a single Democrat that supports this guy. This guy is pro-corruption. He doesn't believe that we should know who's donating to him. I mean, the problem is the donations in the first place, but you take it a step further. You really, I mean, double down on your support for corruption if you don't even think we should see who's funding you. Any Democrat who votes to confirm him should be voted out of office because this, this guy is unacceptable. He's dangerous. His response, it's really unbelievable to me. I mean, it is what it is. This made me so angry when I heard him say that. No, Neil, this isn't the way that it should be. And if you think it is, then you're the problem and you shouldn't be on the Supreme Court. So if we got to block him for four or eight years, then we block him for four or eight years. That's just the way it's going to be. So I think that by now, most of my audience knows that I am not a religious person at all. But with that being said, there are certain elements of religions that I do appreciate. Like, for example, I do uh, like mindfulness and that idea, which came from Buddhism. And there are certain philosophical aspects of the Bible that I do support and agree with. So, for example, Matthew 5.3 reads, Blessed are the poor. And Matthew 19.21 reads, If you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. So, in other words, this sounds pretty humanistic to me. I mean, you should support the poor. You should help to lift up those who are unfortunate. And I, I agree with this. I can appreciate this. But a message like this you know, it should resonate more with the followers of Christianity than anyone. I mean, I think that this is agreeable. I don't necessarily believe that you need a religion to tell you this. It should just be common sense. But if you really do, 
identify with a religion and you subscribe to Christianity, for example, then this should be a no-brainer. But since Republicans purport to be religious, you would think that this message would be easily agreeable. I mean, give to the poor. It's an inherently political statement, so this should translate into policy as well. But I mean, President Trump, who allegedly found Jesus, recently decided to cut funding for programs that actually help the poor, like Meals on Wheels. I'm sure that that's exactly what Jesus would have wanted. But, you know, the reason why I am calling out Donald Trump's religiosity is because if you're going to claim to be a Christian, then shouldn't you follow the ideals of your religious figures? It makes no sense to me. And, you know, if you are a Republican, up is down and left is right, because apparently to cut funding for Meals on Wheels, that's the more compassionate thing to do, because according to White House Budget Chief Mick Mulvaney, he described the budget blueprint, which calls for dramatic cuts to domestic spending programs in favor of increased funding for military, as one of the most compassionate things we can do. So, <laughs> how exactly is it compassionate to cut funding to programs that feed the poor, you ask? Well, it's simple. According to this guy, uh, you will receive some tax relief. So, congratulations, you will save a penny or two. But, you know, the poor go hungry. <laughs> that doesn't sound very compassionate, and I think that I would be more than willing to pay not just, you know, a penny or two more. I'd be willing to pay substantially more in my taxes if I know that my fellow Americans are taken care of. Now, hearing about Donald Trump's so-called skinny budget, Colin Kaepernick decided to donate $50,000 to Meals on Wheels, and people are now criticizing him for this because they are contending that, you know, this is just a publicity stunt. He's not doing it out of the goodness of his heart. But I mean, even if this is a publicity stunt, then I don't care if he gets recognition for it because if some person gets the spotlight because they did something good, then that might encourage other people to do it. So in short, I want people to get praise when they do things that are good. But I mean, certainly, if you are a Christian, if you purport to be a subscriber of the philosophy of Jesus Christ, then you should have absolutely no problem with Colin Kaepernick's decision to donate $50,000, right? I mean, how could this possibly be a problem if you're a Christian? Well, according to Sarah Palin, she has a big problem with him donating $50,000. Now, the scripture that I quoted earlier should guide Sarah Palin because, I mean, she's a strong, committed Christian. She actually said it was Jesus Christ who kept her standing through the 2008 election, according to the Christian Broadcasting Network. She was quoted saying, There's no way I would be standing if it weren't for that faith that I adopted as a kid, asking Christ into my life putting my life in his hands, saying, God, you're my creator. I got to believe that you know more about destiny than I do. So heaven forbid, I try to orchestrate it myself. Lord, send me off. I'll go. So I mean, by that quote alone, she's obviously a so-called committed Christian. So you would think that she would commend Colin Kaepernick for basically abiding by the laws of the God that she purports to follow, but she released a scathing blog post on her website condemning him. So Mediaite explains the title of her blog post on the topic is, Seriously, Colin Kaepernick just pulled another political stunt. Obviously, her use of another refers to Kaepernick's decision not to stand for the national anthem in protest of police brutality. In a tweet linking to the post, she mused, no wonder he can't get a job, in reference to reports that some NFL teams don't want to hire him. She concluded her post with, Kaepernick is pretty bold to make another political move like this one. 
Kaepernick donated his money to a program that feeds some of the neediest Americans. That's why the post and tweet insisting that there is something nefarious about donating to a program that feeds the disabled and elderly are generating a lot of shock. And because of the backlash that she received after posting something that makes her a hypocrite, according to her own religion, she decided to remove it. So to kind of recap here what went on, so we had, uh, you know, a Christian, a Christian fundamentalist who claims that Jesus is her God and, you know, his philosophy guides her. She lambasted someone for abiding by the principles of her own God and said that he was doing something that was a political stunt or a publicity stunt to bolster his own popularity. He wasn't doing it out of the goodness of his heart. There's no way that could be the case. He's doing this because he wants something out of it. But regardless if he was doing that or not, isn't he abiding by your God, Sarah? He's feeding the poor. Again, blessed are the poor. And the Bible, the Bible that you say you follow, says that you should sell your possessions and give it up to the poor. Have you done that yet? Don't you live in a mansion? It, it, it makes no sense to me how constituents, evangelical constituents, can't see through the bullshit that these hypocritical so-called Christians continue to espouse. This is not a Christian thing to say, Sarah Palin, and the reason why I'm using your religion to criticize you is because you use this religion against other people. You use your religion as grounds to justify bigotry against the LGBT community. You use your religion to justify the repression of women's rights, but yet you only want to abide by your religion when it's convenient for you. But I mean, if you truly believe that a God is commanding you to help the poor, why would you lambast Colin Kaepernick for doing what you're supposed to be doing? For doing what you apparently believe in? The fact that there's even a large evangelical base in America when we have politicians this brazenly hypocritical astounds me. It really does. It astounds me. And, you know, this is part of the reason why I say that right-wing social justice warriors are a bigger threat than left-wing SJWs because they actually have political power. Everyone laughs at left-wing SJWs, but right-wing SJWs, they have political power. They craft policy. They elect people like Donald Trump and Sarah Palin. So we have to talk about this. We have to call them out on their hypocrisy when they do things that harm the American people, especially if they believe in a religion that says you should help the poor. Unbelievable. Flint, Michigan's nearly 100,000 residents have dealt with an ongoing water contamination crisis for years now, and they've received little to no help from the federal government and their state government has been completely incompetent on the matter and even criminal. Now, with Donald Trump's recent decision to slash the EPA's funding, the silver lining is that he didn't actually slash funding when it comes to their water infrastructure. So on March 17th, the EPA finally announced that $100 million would be sent to Michigan for water infrastructure upgrades. Now, the press release states the funding provided by the Water Infrastructure Improvements for the Nation Act of 2016 enables Flint to accelerate and expand its work to replace lead service lines and make other critical infrastructure improvements. The people of Flint and all Americans deserve a more responsive federal government, said EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt. 
EPA will especially focus on helping Michigan improve Flint's water infrastructure as part of our larger goal of improving America's water infrastructure. I appreciate the EPA approving this funding to assist with Flint's recovery, Michigan Governor Rick Schneider said. Combined with the nearly $250 million in state funding already allocated, this will help put Flint on a solid path forward. It's great to see federal, state, and local partners continuing to work together to help with infrastructure upgrades and pipe replacements for the people of Flint. So now, finally, after years of waiting with no response, the residents of Flint have a reason to be slightly optimistic. But I mean, it shouldn't have taken this long. And now that they're getting the money finally sent to them now, well, it's still going to take time for those pipes to be replaced. They're not going to get immediate relief. So they're still going to have contaminated drinking water. So that's why you shouldn't have played politics with this. You shouldn't have waited. As soon as we found out that there was a lead contamination crisis, government should have acted immediately. State and federal government should have acted swiftly to make sure that these these residents don't have contaminated drinking water. Water is life. This is not something that is arguable. Water is life. Everyone has a right to water. They are entitled to water and nobody should be forced to deal with contaminated drinking water. And to illustrate just how badly the residents of Flint were treated, well, according to the Washington Post, state officials ended a program that has helped pay residents bills since a series of ill-fated decisions by state-appointed emergency managers left the city's water system contaminated with lead. Since that 2014 disaster, the state has spent roughly $41 million in credits to help offset local utility bills. Residents have gotten a 65% credit each month on their water use, while commercial accounts received a 20% credit. So to reiterate just how preposterous this situation was, Residents were still forced to pay for their water bills in spite of the fact that their water was literally poisoned and some of them even received past due notices threatening to shut off their poison water because they weren't paying their bill and were unable to pay their bill. Not kidding. Now, I don't want to just tell you about the story of uh, the residents of Flint. I think it's important that we actually hear from the residents of Flint themselves so that way we get an idea of what they were dealing with. This is a clear cut that I just poured it in. And as you can see, that's what it looks like. Flint, Michigan. This has been going on for over two years they have been charging the residents of Flint, Michigan an exorbitant amount of water bill to even get the water turned on. It costs almost $400. And this is what they are paying for in Flint, Michigan. But if you hear the sound behind me, it's our vent. And I also have my window open up there to allow the fumes to vent out because the smell is so strong, like chemicals, that it burns my eyes, nose, throat, and sometimes I wheeze so badly that I have to use my rescue inhaler and I don't have asthma or COPD. I've been tested for it. Um, water Defense has tested my water and found so many carcinogenic byproducts, um, so high dichlorobenzene and uh, chloroform, things that we should not be inhaling. And yet we keep hearing from experts that yes, there's high lead and copper, there's also lead and copper in my water that you're looking at right here, um, but it's safe to bathe. 
How in the world, if it's not safe to drink, how is it safe to bathe? <laughs> I, I can't imagine living with that for years. Imagine how inconvenient that would be. Imagine how how uneasy that would make you feel that you're filling your bathtub with water and you have to open your window because of the fumes or when you fill up a cup in your sink, it's yellow. That That's no citizen in a first world country should ever have to deal with this. I mean, nobody in any, in any country, even third world countries should have to deal with this because I think as human beings, we deserve better. But I mean, in a modern industrialized nation, we should never have to deal with this. So let's replace the pipes. Let's get them clean drinking water. But we have to make sure now that there is accountability, that we fire some people, that we throw people in jail who are responsible for this. Because when you privatize water and you try to make something profitable that shouldn't be profitable, this is what happens. This is the type of shit that we see that happens. So we have to make sure that there's accountability. So a crisis of this magnitude never happens again. But I don't think that's going to be the case. I think that people will get away scot-free like they usually do in government. When really, I mean, the state of Michigan, they should all vote every single person out of office who didn't act immediately to uh, solve this crisis. I mean, the governor, this guy should be impeached. So, I mean, in the end, I'm relieved that the residents of Flint, Michigan can be optimistic for the first time in years. But it never should have taken this long. And... Look, we, we have to make sure that there's accountability here. Otherwise, this will happen again if other state and government officials see that they can do this and get away with it. Well, that is all I got for you guys today. I want to thank everyone for tuning in if you made it this far in the episode. I also want to send a special thank you to the Patreon patrons, the members on HumanistReport.com, and anyone who submitted a donation to us recently via PayPal, or just in general, if you did it a year ago. Thank you so much for believing in us and supporting the show, and if you share our videos and like our videos, I, you know, I can't thank you enough for really believing in the progressive cause and trying to further the progressive message. Uh, so thank you all so much. Um... Yeah, you, you guys are so great. You're, you are inspirational to me, the fact that you really believe in progressive ideas and the fact that progressives online are just exploding everywhere. It's proof that we have the right message. So thank you all so much. I will see you all next week. Have a great day.